Bonjour. I'm Terence Galente, your American friend in Paris, and I'm delighted today to welcome my guest, William Middleton, uh, former uh, Paris bureau chief of Fairchild Publications, and one-time fashion features director for Harper's Bazaar, and the author of, of two books. He doesn't write very often, but when he writes, he writes damn well, uh, as I have right in front of me, uh, Double Vision. I learned a great deal about, uh, about art and, and about the uh, cultural uh, wasteland that used to be Houston until uh, John and Dominique uh, and uh, Dominique uh, arrived in Houston. It, uh, anyone interested in the cultural birth of a city and the importance of art to cultural life and particularly American cities uh, needs to read this book. Uh, mazel tov, as we say here in France. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. And uh, and then now another great book uh, on this one on the extraordinary life of Karl Lagerfeld called Paradise Now, which will be available in bookstores around the world uh, officially on the 28th of February. Uh, let's talk, let's begin, uh, you know, Carl, uh, my, my sense of, of Carl and I, I knew quite a bit, uh, but as I began to read, I learned so much more. Uh, a really authentic uh, polymath, uh, uh, designer, very astute businessman, uh, a wonderful photographer, a collector of books and architecture and, and, and culture, uh, just a phenomenal character, which I'm sure gave you an enormous, although you had met him before, but a, a tremendous insight. And I, I've often been of the opinion that, uh, and we can talk about the uh, Walmart Award, uh, that he and Yves Saint Laurent more or less burst on the scene simultaneously. But uh, Yves Saint Laurent would not have become Yves Saint Laurent without Pierre Berger. And in, in effect, Carl uh, was his own Pierre Berger. Talk about that, because uh, they both won a major award from, from Woolmark that began to uh, launch their careers. So let's talk about that as a, as a way of getting started. Sure, sure. So in, 19, in 1954, starting in the spring of 1954, they announced a competition uh, that um, uh, people who were not professionals could enter, and you would send a design in, and um, there were some 6,000 entries. And Carl won for a coat dress, and Yves Saint Laurent won for a dress, and there was a third winner as well. So there were three of them, and the winners were announced in. Uh, Who was the third winner? The third winner named Colette. Um, okay. I always forget her last name. Is it Brianchi? But it's it's kind of an Italianish last name. Mm -hmm. um, and she did not pursue a career in fashion afterwards, um, but. Uh, the three were announced uh, as winners in November. And then at the beginning of December, there was a ceremony at uh, what is now the Espace Cardin there on the uh, Champs-Élysées. And um, it was a major event. Carl was 21 years old. Yves Saint Laurent was 18, I believe. And um, they were uh, both kind of launched in their careers uh, at that point. So one of the things that was exciting for me in doing the research for this book is you may remember that um, I mentioned a, 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 a notebook that I was able to review that was in the Sotheby's sale of Carl's estate. And, um, and it was super important to understanding more about that moment in 1954, because we all knew that he won. We all knew that Yves Saint Laurent won. But what I found in this auction was, um, and it was listed as a scrapbook that Carl had put together 
a work binder, but actually it was his mother who put it together. And Carl sent her everything back in Germany um, from you know the the telegram that he sent or she had the telegram that he sent her to announce that he had won the um the communicated press that uh the world wool bureau sent out announcing the winners um all of his correspondence with the wool bureau all of the press in french all of the press in german and then there was a amazingly enough an eight-page letter that carl wrote to his mother in german on the night of the ceremony he was staying in a little residential hotel in the Rue de Sorbonne, and he went back and he sat down and he wrote a letter to his mother explaining everything about what had just happened. And um, it's all fascinating information because Carl had always said that he was, um, you know, self-educated, which is true in a general sense. But um, one of the things that we learned from this, this work binder is that um, actually he had studied with someone named Madame Norero. There was a, 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 a school of fashion illustration called the Cours Norero that, to be honest, very few people knew about and certainly made no connection between that school and Carl. And um, it's in the Communicated Press. It's in other articles about Carl at that time. And it's in the letter that Carl writes to his mother talking about Madame Norero and how proud she was of him that night and all of that. So, you know, all of this is like brand new information. It's super exciting. Well, I mean, you you mentioned mothers, and we're all somewhat uh, a reflection of our mothers for good or bad, depending upon, I guess, on the mother and and the and and the results. Uh, talk about that relationship. I mean, you've mentioned Mama many many times in in about two sentences. So, what was her impact on his life? Yeah, I mean, she's someone who Carl spoke about uh, continuously. It's one of those elements of the story, to be honest, that. I feel like all I can do is tell you what I've uncovered and then it's up to everyone to decide how they feel, you know, because there are some, there are some times when Carl's stories about his mother sound almost too good to be true, you know, and they sound almost like his voice, you mm -hmm. know, so you don't know if his voice comes from his mother or if that's him kind of like making her sound a little more harsh than she actually was. Um, you know, he says things like um, that she would say things like, you know, what you have to say isn't very interesting, so you better speak fast. You know, um, or she slammed the piano down on his on his hands when he was trying to play the um, saying, uh, you know, you, you'll never play very well. So why don't you draw? It makes less noise. Sounds like she would have been at home in the mafia. <laughs> right. Right. And um, so, you know, I spoke with quite a few people who either knew her or had seen her and um it's hard for me to get a she's still somewhat vague in my mind you know there are some people who talk about seeing her kind of go through the background in carl's apartment here in paris on the rue university and just like this figure moving through the background and you stop talking and she went on and all of that and i feel like she's she's a kind of mysterious figure but one of the things hovering that over your shoulder to make sure you get it right I guess. But, you know, there's some, you know, one person who was a good friend of Carl said that she was like an ice pick, you know, um, and then there are others who said that she was, you know, warm and lovely. And 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 uh, so, you know, it's difficult to say exactly. One of the things that I that I feel confident in is uh, Carl had always suggested that she was dismissive about his role as a designer, you know, saying, oh, it's good that you're, you know, obviously you're not very ambitious. You just want to be a fashion designer. 
you know, but the fact that she assembled this scrapbook in such a kind of loving way, that she moved it with her from Hamburg to Baden-Baden when her husband retired. Then when he died, she moved it with her to Paris when she moved him with Coral. Then she moved it to his house in Brittany. She kept it with her all of her life. I mean, for me, that suggests that this is someone who was very proud of her son. Absolutely. Uh, Lou, let's go back to 1949 in, in Hamburg and talk about uh, a little bit about what it, what it meant to be a German post-war post and how that influenced his work and his life. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the, you know, everyone has known for a long time that Carl was interested in the, the French 18th century. But <clears throat> I've known that for a long time. But once I started thinking more about you know, Germany in 1945 and the kind of complete moral, economic, military collapse of Germany. And, and you know, one of the most tragic moments in history, you know, everything that's happened in Germany in the last five years. Um, and then Carl comes across this painting that um, that depicts a world much like the French 18th century. And it begins his obsession with the French 18th century. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're a sensitive, creative person in a place uh, at a moment in time like that, in a world like that, that's been destroyed, and you're surrounded by death and destruction, and suddenly you come across this world that's like, you know, glittering and sophisticated and, and you know, um, all of the wit of the French 18th century, it's like, of course, you're going to be attracted to that, you know, and, 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 and Carl sort of, as I see it, turned his back on the, on the ugly reality of what was going on around him and focused on this incredible French 18th century, and he would for the rest of his life. And I think that's uh, fascinating. So, you know, I think that I have a better understanding of, you know, because we talk in the book about, um, you know, what it meant to him to research the 18th century, to learn about Voltaire, to learn about um, the uh, someone who I did not know very well, uh, but this prince, Princess Palantine, you know, who is this German-born wife of the younger brother of Louis XIV, and this incredible correspondence <laughs> that she wrote to her family back in Germany, and how, you know, alive and and harsh it is in many ways, but incredibly entertaining. And Carl loved this woman so much that he wanted to write a biography about her. You know, so um, I think all of that is super interesting to see his like learning about the French 18th century and what it means. What To what degree were, <clears throat> were the after effects of the Shoah and his uh, being a German, uh, who had obviously had nothing to do with it, uh, how did that affect his perspective on, on himself and, uh, and, and others' perception on him? Yeah, well, I think, you know, for me, that's a very telling moment in the book, too, because, you know, I knew that Carl always lied about his age, you know, that he always shaved five years off of his age. And I knew also that the effect that that had meant that if he were actually born in 1938 instead of 1933, he wouldn't have remembered the war. You know, he would have been too young. But um, there was a really interesting moment for me with uh, Gerhard Steidel, who's the publisher of um, who's the head of Steidel Publishing in Germany, who worked with Carl for decades. Um, and he said to me, you know, I don't know if it was because I was young or we were just begin our, being, beginning our relationship or perhaps I was naive or something. But he said, I asked Carl, you know, why do you say you were born in 1938 when you were really born in 1933? And he said, you know, Gerhard, I did it because I was ashamed. 
I was ashamed that I was born in the year that the Nazis came to power and began their persecution of the Jewish people. He said, and and he didn't want to be connected to that, you know, and no one has ever asked Carl that, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's super interesting, you know, so um you know, yeah, I think, I think the word shame is because uh, I, I, you know, living in France where I guess uh, the word shame doesn't exist, a little bit of a hypocrisy uh, about their behavior during the war. Uh, right. But uh, young, young Germans are uh, ashamed. Uh, they're not mm -hmm. responsible. Uh, their parents were probably not responsible, maybe even their grandparents, but they're ashamed that it happened there. And it's not going right. to happen again. And, and I think of like, um, do you know, I don't know how well you know the work of Ger uh, of. Um, Richter, Gerhard Richter, you know, who was born around the same year as Carl, mm -hmm. uh, artist, and um, he witnessed from afar, I believe, the bombing of Dresden, and he used that in his work, and he used Nazi imagery in his work, mm -hmm. and that's an example of a creator who was born around the same time and who experienced some of the same things as Carl, who used that material in his creativity. Carl went the opposite direction. He refused to look at that. You know, he went towards the French 18th century. And yeah, Otto Dix and Beckman, these guys were not for him. Right, right. I think that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I thought, but the whole subject, you know, is interesting, and we'll never run out of uh, speculation and thoughts and impressions, uh, you know, of of that period and and how it uh, led on. I want to I want to quote. Uh, I guess it's Anne Briey, B R I E Y, uh, who said of uh, who worked with him at beginning at Chloe, uh, described him as being as talent, hard work, generosity, and kindness. Uh, in defining him. And uh, those last two words uh, I, I, are very important to me. I mean, my favorite four-letter word is kind. And I find mm -hmm. that, you know, kindness is not something that can be learned. Uh, you're nice to people because if you're not, your grandmother's going to smack you in the face. But <laughs> kindness comes from the heart. And it, at some level, given this, you know, the whole personality that he created for the public, you don't automatically assume uh, and yet, and he was enormously generous to to his friends and the people around him. Absolutely, you think the opposite. You think exactly. that this is someone who must be, you know, a monster because that yeah. was part of the, egomaniac, uh, yeah, narcissistic. Yeah, part, of, part of the character that he created, and 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 you may remember in that chapter where I I, I talk about my relationship with Carl because I met him starting in January 1995, and after I got to know him a while, I said, and, and at this point in his life, he was. You know, kind of overweight and wearing the big blaggy, baggy suits, black suits, mm -hmm. and he had a fan, and he had just started powdering his hair. And, you know, I felt like the public image was so kind of harsh and unforgiving. And once I got to know him a little better, I felt like the reality was so much warmer. And I told him that. I said, I've rarely seen someone who has a public image that can be so kind of harsh, but the reality, once you get to know them, is actually kinder and, and you know, almost touching. And he said, well, it's better that than the opposite. No? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like... I know a lot of people for whom it is the opposite. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people who give this impression. Well, in the world that you've been trafficking, in trafficking, yeah, I mean, they give in, in fashion, my God. Way, the reality is a little different. And with Carl, it wasn't. And so, you know, the thing, one thing that I keep coming back to, it sounds like a silly thing to judge uh, a person on, but I would say, you know, of the people I interviewed, probably a dozen at some point in our interview started crying, thinking about mm -hmm. Carl, you know, and it's like, that's a sincere uh, that that shows how people sincerely cared about him mm -hmm. you know and also it was interesting for me to see how many people at different levels of his life uh 
really cared about him. One time I was going to Chanel to interview someone and there, there's kind of a VIP lounge there uh, near the couture salon. And there was a, a man working at the front door. Um, and I mentioned that I was working on a biography on Carl and, and he just volunteered, you know, how much he loved him and how much he meant to everyone in the house and all of that. And it's like, that doesn't happen all the time. You know, that someone at every level of an organization, you know, spontaneously offers praise. Well, it suggests like authenticity to me. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, this was who he was. Uh, let's go back and, and talk a bit about his 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 career. Uh, I, 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 I forget the, the woman's name, uh, the... Um, from Chloe, who just died a couple of years ago. And I don't know if you had an opportunity to interview her, how far along you were in the research. But but talk about that relationship, because she gave him an opportunity, really put him in a position to become Carl Lagerfeld, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's an amazing figure. Um, I never know how to pronounce her last name, so I'm going to avoid well, that. she's like but me. That... She's a, a Sephardic Jew from the Maghreb, although... Yeah, is you, Aguillon, is you, in that, in that, in that vein, that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to step to the plate and confirm it. <laughs> okay. But um, yeah, she was amazing. And Chloe was amazing. And, you know, Carl made his opportunity there as well, you know, because mm -hmm. he was part of a team and then he kind of like cleared the deck. And so it was um, what they did at Chloe was uh, remarkable. You know, when I met Carl in the nineties, I was prepared to say that there were other designers who were more important in terms of fashion on a pure fashion level. You mentioned Saint Laurent, there are others. Um, but the more research I did on this book, I've kind of revised my opinion of that mm -hmm. because I really understand like what he did at Chloe and at Fendi in the 60s, in the 70s, up until 1983 when he joined Chanel, you know. Um, there was a lot of controversy when Carl joined Chanel, you know, German designer taking over a French institution. But once you like really study how his collections are received at Chloe and at Fendi throughout the 70s and into the early 80s, you're like, of course they chose Carl. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just obvious. And and I have a greater appreciation for how he was viewed on a purely fashion level in throughout that time before he even joined Chanel. Well, also, I mean, he uh, he was an enormously effective uh, uh, practitioner of publicity. The I think it was the famous show that he did in New York. Uh, maybe you can you know be more specific about it. That in a sense launched a, a way of showing a fashion that had never been done before. Mm. Well, I mean, the shows that he did at Chloe were were you know spectacles in that way. You know, right. with the, you know three hundred passages, and and you know it's like. And and incredible music and and um, yeah, it was just shows had not been that kind of dramatic um, until Carl um, before what Carl was doing at at Chloe. So yeah, all of that is um, super interesting. I mean, the there's that moment, and this is a Texas moment, but I but I love it when he he flies to the United States in 1979 and he takes a Concorde to New York and then a Gulfstream down to Houston. And they meet him on the runway with a marching band and 90 pom-pom girls. <laughs> they give him a Stetson and, you know, they have- Was Bob Sakowitz there? You know, it was it was actually for uh, Neiman Marcus. Mr. Yeah. Stanley was there. It was for Neiman Marcus in Houston. In Houston, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was, um, uh, anyway, it was an amazing sort of, Oh yeah, he has like a stretch limousine with the steer horns in front and stuff like <laughs> that. 
And, um, you know, it's like that was 1979. That was long yeah. before, you know, he, he started it at uh, Chanel. So, yeah, I mean, I think that to really understand Carl as a personality uh, is 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 fascinating. In fact, that was one of the things that was a big challenge for this book, because mm -hmm. Carl was so good at, at crafting his kind of public image. And um, that, of course, is part of the story. You know, that's part of his his life story. But it's also important to kind of get behind that, you know, and get a sense of who was he really behind the scenes, you know. And I, I mentioned this in the acknowledgments. I don't know if you've seen that, but my editor. No, no. I, well, I read the book, so. It's okay. Not, yeah. I wasn't sure. Being, I wasn't. No, no. Being, I, got, I got Emmy got me a, a galley. It wasn't easy, to, but they got it to me a long time ago. Okay, good. I yeah. think you had one before I did. Um, uh, why not? I'm, I'm more important than you in promoting the I book. I know, I know. No one cares about the author once the book is done. But um, the um, uh, one of the things that I mentioned in the acknowledgments is that my editor said very early in the process, we want to feel like we're in the same room with Carl. You know, and that was a super important piece of editorial direction. direction you know? yeah. It sounds obvious, but no one has ever said that to me before. And with Carl in particular, I think that's really important. And the way you do that is through his words, of course, but through the words of people who were in the room with him, you know, mm -hmm. and who really remembers, you know, have specific details of moments that they had together. And I think that um, that's one thing that I'm proud of with this book is that I think we really, there was someone who worked really closely with Carl for the last two decades of his life, who's read the manuscript. And she said that she feels that Carl, she feels that Carl is on every page of this book. And it's such well, a I feel, and I, I must compliment you again. I don't want to be promiscuous in my in my compliments, mm -hmm. but the, uh, you know, as a uh, as a journalist, which you are fundamentally before all this, uh, th that's a uh, to go from that, which is a, as I guess who I forget who said it, but it's history of the moment, and you're writing fast. You you have an impression. You have to boil boil your thoughts down to a. I used to write a movie column. I had six hundred words. Uh, and you you learn how to write short. Well, to do what you're doing, which is now to really expand, to get into an enormous amount of research, uh, are you putting on a different hat when you do that, or is it just fundamentally uh, you? Uh, well, you know, the thing that I learned is that um, in 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 writing my first book, and and a little less with this one because now I've I've. Oh, you're I've a veteran. Done, I've done it twice now. Um, is that research is fun. You know, it's like, who doesn't like to research? You know, I, I always liked research as a as a journalist and I always liked research, you know, and, and, on, on a longer project like this. But what I found is that when you when you do research on this level, um, what is, you know, learning is fantastic, but it's doing something with all that knowledge that's excruciating because suddenly, you know, like the first book, you know, it's like, I don't know, I had 10,000 pages of interview transcripts, you know, 5,000 letters, you know, 10,000 photographs from the family archive. Mm -hmm. It's like all of, and then, you know, 150 books that I read and all of this information that you're trying to pull from and get comfortable with enough with to put into a narrative, you know, that is uh, demanding. And the Carl book was um, challenging in that way, too, but I'm more familiar with the process now. Well, you're, you know. you're quoting Robert Caro, who's working on volume five of, uh, you know, of the, the Johnson thing. And yeah. he said, oh, I love research. I hate writing. Right, right. I mean, the writing is the work. The research is the fun. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I didn't know that he said that, but yeah. He, I well, definitely... yeah, it's, it's, it's almost a direct quote. There's a, a phenomenal uh, documentary that Bob Gottlieb's daughter made. I haven't seen it yet. I want It's to. phenomenal. It, yeah. It's humbling. I mean, I watched that, you know, and in my modest evaluation of myself, and I'm, I'm humbled uh, at the, uh, the, the gigantesque nature of their mutual talents and the uh, the way they were able to work together over 50 years to right. promote, you know, it's just, you know, that's another, it's another world. It is, there's, that's a level that none of us will ever approach, uh, in my, my opinion. But uh, yeah, but I, I must compliment you. This is great. I'm, I can't wait for the next book. But let's let's go back a little bit because you know I, I alluded at the outset about his being a polymath, an auto autodidact, if you will, and he has such a broad array of of uh, talent. I mean, uh, of which maybe uh, clothing designing may not be the most. Uh, he great photographer, designer of books, collector of books. Uh, his Art Deco in 18th century France, uh, historian. Uh, and I suspect that I don't know where all that knowledge came from, unless probably like most of us comes from reading and, and life and absorbing. Uh, and uh, that he was able to incorporate that into so much of what he did in terms of his work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a statement, I guess, more than a question. But yeah, yeah. But maybe you know, I don't, don't want to sound like Charlie Rose. You, you can kind of discern the question and answer it. But uh, yeah, how did all that? How did his mind work in that sense, in terms of of learning and absorbing and integrating it and becoming this? You know, uh, I mean, I'm I'm starting to get a chance to meet him. Now that I know much more about him, I would have really enjoyed it much more than I think I would have thought before. Right, right. Um, you know, I think that Carl would have uh, uh, been reluctant to accept compliments like that because anything that suggested that he was an intellectual or particularly uh, cultured, I think, was something that he was uh, uh, not open to accepting. But, you know, his knowledge is just incredible. You know, and I saw it in so many cases of, you know, when we would do a story, for example, on this house that he did in Hamburg, that was incredible, that was inspired by Northern Europe and all of that. And, and when he would explain to me some of the references and some of the historical references and all of that, I mean, there were, there were, someone like Robson Gibbings, which who was an English American designer in the middle part of the 20th century, was not someone I knew at that point. And mm -hmm. Carl's like explaining to me the significance of the work and all of that. Um, yeah, his degree of knowledge of that was just, you know, one area. Um, just for that story, there were like, you know, a good dozen kind of design references and another half dozen kind of historical references, you know, in term literary and political um, Germany and the Weimar Republic. And, um, you know, th that was just one house and one mm -hmm. moment, you know. And so, um, yeah, it was it was incredible. I always felt like he was a little disingenuous when he said that he didn't like to focus on the past. Right. And um I now understand that, you know, really what he's saying is that he doesn't like to focus, he didn't like to focus on his own past. You mm -hmm. know, he did know about the past. He did know about history. He was fascinated by that. Sure. Knowledge was important to him. He just, 
and and this is so different from so many people today who designers who would like nothing more than to have a museum exhibition about about their work you know who would like that kind of consecration Paul was horrified by that he felt there was something funereal about mm -hmm. that you once you start focusing Final, on, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah that you're not you're no longer moving forward you're no mm -hmm. longer focusing on the present and I think well, he was a, he was an yeah. enormous risk risk taker uh, you right. talked very early on about a parallel with uh, Halston, whose career almost ended when he, uh, with his collaboration with J.C. Penney, uh, right. and and Carl had a very successful collaboration with uh, H and M or Ashland mm -hmm. M, the uh, what are you, Swedish mm -hmm. or somewhere up there in Scandinavia. Uh, right. Talk about that and how he was able to, uh, in, in a sense, uh, I want to say do a markdown version of Karl Lagerfeld, but to do something more accessible to the to the general public that expressed his talent and, and his vision, but was also, he made very smart financial decisions. This worked. Mm -hmm. He didn't just take the money. He, he really went, it wasn't just a licensing agreement. He, he went out and created something that was fresh and new. Sure. And what's fascinating, there are so many things that are fascinating about that collaboration with H&M in the fall of 2004. <clears throat> You know, Carl is 71 years old and he's approached by the Swedish, you know, mass market retailer um, to do this collaboration. And the, the thing that was most important for him that I mentioned in that in the phone call with the art director was, you know, hey, wait a minute. Has um, have you asked anyone else about doing this? And he's like, no, you're the first. And he goes, OK, great. That's what I want. He not only did he want to do this, not only did he understand that we're at a moment in time when people are looking at something high, high-end like Chanel or Fendi or something more mass market and affordable like H&M. People mm -hmm. wanted one or the other. You know, it wasn't, um, it was the thing in the middle that he was always opposed to, right? Um, but um, he understood that, you know, harnessing the power of the mass market all around the globe with, you know, his kind of design sensibility was going to be powerful. And the idea was to unveil it all around the world at the same time, and what was interesting about that in terms of Carl's life is it, I, I use this term in the book that Carl had always been fashion famous, you know, for decades. Everyone in the world of fashion knew who he was. But once he did this collaboration with H&M, he became a global superstar. You know, everyone at every age group, at every socioeconomic level, everywhere in the world knew the name Carl Lagerfeld, you know. And, and also what's interesting about it is it provided... Um, sort, of, sort of a template for, because his own house, the house of Karl Lagerfeld had compared with Fendi, compared with Chanel, it had been sort of floundering or not really finding the right position. And Carl understood after the collaboration with H&M where that house should go, you know, and it was sort of inspired by that, you know, lots of black and white, lots of graphic things, silhouettes of Carl, and the house has become incredibly successful because of that. So, um, you know, it's, but it's, it's when, you know, Carl started to become almost an avatar, you know, mm -hmm. it's like the, the, the silhouette, the, um, yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating moment. I think the, the, his collaboration, collaboration with H&M. Well, he also, he also, uh, uh, I guess the comedy he'd made is that, uh, I've been uh, Chanel longer than Chanel. Uh, right. You know. Uh, as you say, I mean, a, a German designer taking over this iconic house. Uh, talk uh, about that, perhaps, and his his approach. How did he approach it as this 
iconic outsider becoming an insider and, and, and continuing what she had started, but yet reinterpreting it in a way that it was contemporaneous. Yeah, well, this and this goes with uh, what you were saying earlier about his kind of, uh, you know, it, the fact that he's a, um, you know, his, his quest for knowledge. You know, one of the things that he did is he sat down and he analyzed what is Chanel? You know, what was Chanel design? And he felt like um, what had um, become known as Chanel after her comeback in 1954 through her death in 1971 was kind of the least interesting part of Chanel's career, that there were so many things in the 20s, 30s, and and, and 30s that had sort of been forgotten about. And he wanted to return to that sort of vision. But I think what he did that's so interesting, because now, you know, everyone is used to the idea of revisiting a classic house like Chanel. At that point, no one had done that. No one had taken... Uh, well, I guess they hadn't died yet. You know, yeah, Christian that, Dior... Well, yeah, Dior died and, and Saint Laurent stepped in and then, right. you know, Saint Laurent kind of continued. But the difference with Chanel is that, you know, she had died a dozen years before and the house was almost bankrupt, you know, and it was kind of existing on fragrance and, and beauty. And um, Carl stepped in and showed how you can use the history of a house and make it modern, you know, and, you know, he looked at certain elements classic elements of chanel design and played with them you know and and um and i think that's fascinating you know chanel went from being practically bankrupt to an 11 billion dollar company by the time carl died you know yeah, and no, that's exactly I, I want to tell you just briefly touch on the, the the fendi sisters and then let's talk a little bit about 7l while we have we have about five minutes more on, on this on this broadcast uh so okay. how how did the fendi deal come about yeah, so Fendi knew about him and knew that he was a young designer. So he had left uh, Jean Patou, where he what was. What year is this now? It well, it started in '63 with uh, Fendi, and um, he had left uh, Patou the year before, uh, where he was a couturier, and he felt like it was not relevant to the world, and he wanted to become like a freelance designer. Now there are so many people who do that, but he started his own office right here at 35 Rue de l'Université. It's like a, you know, a, his own kind of freelance office with other creatives working with them. And he started working with Chloe. And then the Fendi sisters came and asked him to design for them. And, um, you know, Fendi had been a fur house, a leather goods house of, you know, excellent quality, but it had never been a fashion house. You know, it had never done fashion. And Carl... Uh, immediately came up with this idea of fun fur and he designed the logo the the interlocking f's mm -hmm. on that first day and um he said that that those interlocking that logo the interlocking f's is the basis of, of their fortune i'm not sure that's exactly right but it was super successful that logo that he did right away right mm -hmm. and um and what he began to do was interject this fur this traditional kind of roman house with a, a sense of fashion, you know, and from the very beginning, it was, uh, he created excitement around the house of Fendi. And then when they moved into ready to wear in the seventies, Carl was there, those shows at Fendi in the late sixties and early seventies were, uh, incredibly creative and important in terms of fashion. And then, um, and then Carl ushered it right into LVMH. You know, um, well, yeah, and, in, in a sense, he's eviscerated the vestiges of what they were. And we now know Fendi for what it's become. 
Right, right. And that was all done, you know, first with the sisters and then and then with Sylvia Venturini Fendi, that one of the daughters. Mm -hmm. And you know, Carl, she knew Carl from the time she was four, I believe, when her mother and her aunts uh became involved with him. And and you know, Carl was working with her the day before he died. You know, it's like he was still preparing for the Fendi show, you know, two days after he died. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's an incredible part of the Carl story, too. William, there's so much material to get into. We'll never have time to do it in this conversation. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, no, no, that's right. We're going to do it again. Uh, the, uh, the Talk a little about 7L, about the bookstore and the book publishing. Because uh, the thing that I, uh, that I see continually throughout reading the book is, is how meticulous he was, how professional he was, and how important every, the reception of everything he did, not for his own ego, but just for doing high quality work persisted across every platform he was ever involved in. So uh, he's a, a book retailer. He has his bookstore, his Librerie 7L on, uh, and on the Rue de Lille. Um, just make a brief comment about that before we, uh, we, we, we step away. Yeah, so so in, in 1999, he opened a bookstore. He'd already been a huge customer of Galignani and La Une. My favorite bookstore. Yeah, yeah, ah, he loved Lune, and um, uh, he decided to open his own bookstore. So he found a little location at Seven Rue de Lille, and then it had behind it a, a somewhat industrial space, two stories tall, with a, a skylight on top. And um, he realized that that would make a great place for a photography studio. So he had the bookstore in front, his photography studio behind, and I don't know if you've seen images, but in the space that's the photography studio, it is floor to ceiling books, two stories on all four walls. Well, maybe so I'll probably... see it on the 28th if yeah, I'm invited absolutely. to the event. Yes, well, you will be. And so Thank it's, it's 200,000 um, 200, books probably. Amazing, amazing. You know, and and that's what he turned into his photography studio. So um, a, a final thought, uh, I, how would you like to see uh, Carl remembered? Oh, it's a good question. You only have a minute and a half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think that I, as a, I would like Carl to be remembered in all of his complexities. You know, I would like to see him as someone who who did cause trouble from time to time. You know, who could be controversial, who could say controversial things, but who, when you got right down to it, had incredibly warm and loving relationships with so many people in his life. You know, I think Carl and I mentioned this in the book, sometimes like to burnish his reputation as, you know, someone who would cut people out and someone who would do that sort of thing. But um, he he actually was incredibly loyal. He was an incredibly loyal friend. And, and you know, there are examples of his fidelity to both professional and personal relationships for decades, you know. There are examples of other people that he kind of cut out. But then so many people close to him feel like that's kind of normal. William, I have I have to stop, unfortunately. Thank you again for this fabulous book, Paradise Now, uh, available in bookstores on the 28th of February, but you can pre-order at those online things. Start buying the book. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure, and I hope Thank to you see so you much soon. Thank you for to speak with you. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at Terrence at Paris-Expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris dash expat.com and visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the city of light until next time a bientôt à paris